You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. So we're, we're in the Gospel of John, and today we hit a passage that takes in the very last verse of chapter 7 of John and goes through verse 11 of chapter 8 of John. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. And in most Bibles... There's a heading just above this section that says something similar to most ancient manuscripts do not have this section. (laughs) All right, so there's a mess to get started with. (laughs) Let's kind of make our way through this before we even get into our text. So what does that mean? Is, is there part, are there parts of the Bible that aren't supposed to be there or that are, that are questionable? Well, today is your lucky Sunday. It is BOGO Sunday. Buy one, get one. It's two sermons for the price of one. You're welcome. The first sermon, I can see how excited you all are. The first sermon is how we get the Bible, why we believe in it and trust it. And the second sermon will be on this particular text of the Bible. Let me start by telling you what the Bible is in the hopes that as you start to understand God's word, that you would have the understanding of the Bible as being something that is important and significant and you're not influenced away from it. You know, from college classes to the internet to casual conversations, tons of people are downplaying the significance of Scripture. There's a lot of people who say, well, you can't trust it. The manuscripts are bad. It's been badly misinterpreted. It's man-made. So first question, what is the Bible? Now, this one is a little bit more, uh, I guess, uh, elementary to, to ask this question first, but just so that everyone's on the same page. It is a library, really, of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, so that deals with before the coming of Jesus, 27 books of the New Testament that deal with the coming after Jesus. It is written in three languages, the Old Testament mainly in Hebrew with uh, bits and pieces in Aramaic, the New Testament entirely in Greek. It is written by some 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years on three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. This is the best-selling book in the history of the world. It is the most translated book in the history of the world, and it is the most debated and controversial book in the history of the world. When you open the Bible, in addition to seeing books of the Bible, those 66, well, there's also chapters. Those chapters were not added until around 1200 AD. The verses, not until the 1500s. So prior to that, you wouldn't have been able to say, okay, I'm going to read for you John chapter 8, verse 1. You wouldn't really know that that's the effect of it. You know, why are those there? Why do we have chapters and verses then? It's the same reason as you have house numbers, so we can find things. Now, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible says regarding itself that its origin is divine. That this is not just a word about God. This is a word of God, a word from God. There are two particular places. The Apostle Paul 
writes in one of them, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. So what that means is that when God speaks, he speaks through his word. This means that the writing of the Bible was inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. Peter is the other place. He says it this way, 2 Peter 1.20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, somebody's own imagination. This means the Bible is not made up. It means that this is not speculation from man. It is revelation to man from God. That God is speaking clearly and authoritatively to all of humanity through the written word of God. What this means is that there is nothing like the word of God. There is nothing equal to the word of God. There is nothing alongside of or in authority over the word of God. The word of God judges everyone and everything else. It is not judged by anyone or anything So when you open this book, you are receiving the words of God. That's the Bible. Now, what follows that is the question, how do we get the Bible? Well, there's a process for that. Step number one is revelation. God speaks, God reveals, God has something to say. Step number two is inspiration. So the Holy Spirit fills, empowers, guides, enables the authors of Scripture to faithfully, accurately, perfectly record what God is revealing. I'll read it to you again. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter writes, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by by the prophet's own interpretation of things for prophecy never had its origin in the human will in other words it's not made up but prophets though human spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit this is a miracle this is supernatural this is divine revelation this is human authors perfectly recording the words of God Now, here's what you need to know. No original book of the Bible has ever been found. That leads us to step number three. People hear God wrote a book, and it's not surprising, people want copies. So now we go into transmission. How do you get a copy? Well, in the early days, everything was handwritten. You and I are privileged to live on this side of a man by the name of Johannes Gutenberg who invented the printing press. Prior to that, in ancient times, if you wanted a book, you wanted a manuscript, it had to be handwritten. All books, all manuscripts were that way, which means either if you wanted a copy, you either had to read the original and then go ahead and write it, just word for word, hand copy it, or you paid someone to do it. This was a massive undertaking. People would devote their whole life to studying the languages of the Bible. And here's what would take place. There'd be a chief scribe with scribes, several scribes under him. The chief scribe would read God's word. The job of the other scribes were to hear, 
and write what they're hearing. Now, is it possible that the words might have gotten misspelled? Could a punctuation mark have been added or missed? Is it possible that even devoutly studied and focused people, this was their job day and night, is it possible they could hear something but misspell a word, miss a punctuation, put it in the wrong place? Let's just agree that there are minor variances. And the way that they would try to determine whether or not an error was made is that there'd be another level of determination. There'd be an editor who would go to every copy and they wouldn't read the entire thing. That would, you know, that would take forever. So what they would do is that they would count out. Maybe on this page, the 30th word is supposed to be this. The 100th mark on this page is supposed to be this. And that's how they would start determining, okay, this is right then. Well, if the 30th word is supposed to be this and it's not, then, all right, let's send it back. Let's find out what went wrong. That's kind of how that, that happened. Well, what would take place is, is it possible that even an editor, even this extra layer of, of security, if you will, that that editor could also have missed a particular spelling of a word or a punctuation or the word itself Those who have studied this tell us that 99% of the New Testament is without question or debate. No worry about misspelling, mispunctuations. How do we know? Let's say you got a thousand copies of something, one of the books of the Bible, you got a thousand copies dating back. 998 of them spell a word this way. Two of them spell a word this way. Isn't it reasonable to guess that those two were incorrect? So that helps. When you, when you have a larger number of manuscripts, you have something to compare it to. You go and say, well, I bet the original was pretty close to this then. When it comes to these potential variations, mostly our punctuation and spelling, there is no doctrine in question so what happens next so God speaks it's written down copies are made then people in other languages hear hey God wrote a book well we'd like to read it but we don't know that language so then there's the work of translations this is what happens in so many different uh, academic arenas think about history most of what we read about history in English, about other cultures, had to be translated because it was in that other culture's language. It had to be translated. Same thing is true in philosophy. <laughs> you take a class on some philosopher or a group of philosophers, you're probably not reading it in the original language. You're reading a translated copy. Same in international business. You've got to translate across languages. Translation is where you take the original and put it into a different language. And you know what? 
Christians have done more for translation across the languages than any other group ever. They have taken even non-written languages, learned the language of that people group, and have found a way to put it into writing because the word of God was so important, they wanted to make it known. And so Christians the world over have made the idea of translations possible. That's the work of many missionaries, Bible translators. What happens when you pick up a Bible then and you try to read it for yourselves, then it has to be interpreted. Like you could open up a passage and say, okay, what does that mean? What is, what is God trying to say to me here? Well, that same Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of this book then comes along and wants to teach you. How many of you have had an experience where you open the Bible and you pray and God teaches you something about himself, something about you, something about the relationship between him and you? And it's a supernatural thing that happens. It's this meeting between you and God that this Holy Spirit has has interceded for. And so you open the Word of God and the Holy Spirit opens your understanding so that you hear the God of the Word. Opening this book... It's unlike any other book. And if you read it accurately, what you find out is that you not only study it, it is the very book by which God studies you. All of a sudden, you're like, huh, I had that in my heart. Here's where God is encouraging me. Or you read this passage and, wow, I had that on my mind. (laughs) That needs to change. God speaks to you through his word and it's the Holy Spirit that opens your heart and your mind and you will receive a literal word from God. This is why I'm so passionate that you understand taking the Bible seriously and opening it and reading it and trying to understand is so worth it. I don't know what God will say to you, but I promise you, you open up scripture God has something to say to you. That leads to the final question of this section. Why can we trust copies of the Bible? Some of you may have been told that the Bible was written, then thousands of years later, things had been added, changed, rearranged, mistranslated, all of which are false. There are critics of the Bible who believe this, however, Now, years ago, okay, lots of years ago, I took college classes (laughs) in religion, and I had professors who were critical of the Bible. This was at a public university. Yet, in philosophy class, I'm studying Plato. In history class, I'm reading about these documents from ancient times. In literature... I'm reading translated ancient documents that are now considered part of the Western canon of literature. So I've got to ask, do we judge the Bible by the same criteria, the same standards by which we judge all other ancient literature? And I can tell you, if you research this, the trustworthiness of the Bible is in a category unto itself. If you ever took the Alpha course that we've, that we've offered from time to time, you'll know that one of the very first sessions, there's a chart. And it's about how to understand 
how we get these copies of the Bible that can be trusted. The chart goes like this. There is some ancient writing, the date at which that was written, and then the time gap for when the earliest known copy exists. Obviously, the closer you get to the original, the more accurate it will be. So, what happens when you start with, let's start with Homer. You ever heard of Homer? Not the one on The Simpsons. <laughs> Talking about the original, Homer. Homer wrote a book called The Iliad. You might have had to read it in high school or college. The Iliad was written 900 B.C. And the time gap between that original and the most recent copy that's ever been found is 500 years. And we have 653 copies of that ancient document, which is quite a lot for something of that age. But how about this one? How many of you ever had to read something from Plato? Plato writes around 400 B.C. The time gap from 400 B.C. to the most recent copy that has ever been found is 1,200 years. That's a long time. And how many copies do we have to compare with one another? Seven. How about Caesar's Gallic War? This document was written about 50 years before Jesus appeared. The time gap is 950 years, and we have 10 copies to compare. Let's go ahead and jump to the New Testament for sake of time. It is perhaps as little as 30 years from the writing to the original, from the writing of the original to a copy found. Again, remember, no original letters have ever been discovered. A gap of only 30 years between some of those originals and the earliest copies. Some of you have been told there was a long time in between where myth, legend, fable, folklore could occur in, in the writings. And so therefore, uh, you just don't know what to believe when you open the Bible. That's not true. There's a story on the internet, our source of truth, <laughs> that says there was a long period of time that the Bible was lost. And centuries later, somebody rewrote it. That too is simply not true. Instead, what we have is the knowledge that a majority of the eyewitnesses were still alive when the New Testament was written. And the number of ancient copies that have been found is staggering. Over 5,000 Greek translations, over 10,000 Latin translations, and over 9,300 in other languages, and they all match with a 98% precision. Here's what I'm telling you. If you're going to reject the New Testament, then you're going to need to reject the philosophy department, the history department, and the literature department of every university. Here's what it all boils down to. This is the Word of God. It has been preserved by God and His people at great expense and great opposition so that when you pick up the Word of God, you are picking up something that has been accurately copied and faithfully preserved. And furthermore, God the Holy Spirit will help you understand it 
Because it is his strong desire that as you read the word of God, you become more like the son of God. That's the big idea. So we believe the Bible. We trust the Bible. We love the Bible. We want to read the Bible. We want to echo the Bible. We don't want to edit the Bible. Additionally, think about this. Jesus would have taught from copies and translations. Jesus taught from copies and translations from other, into other languages like Aramaic. So that being said, if Jesus could trust copies and translations, I think you and I can as well. So when it comes to John's gospel, ha, now we've come back full circle. We've gone around the cul-de-sac. Here we go. <laughs> that was the first of your two sermons. It was to set the stage for what we're going to hear from John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11, the woman caught in adultery. And as I noted, I'll share it again, just above this section, in my Bible it says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 to 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses, holy or in part, and it lists four other places in the New Testament where this story may be found. Can we feel good about reading the story and knowing that it's pretty accurate? Yeah. Number one, there's no major doctrine in question. And number two, it doesn't contradict anything else in the Bible, certainly not in John. So here we go, John chapter seven, verse 53 and following. They all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. Now, remember the time of year. We just finished John chapter 7. The time of year was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was this week-long holiday, and everybody's been in a good mood. So he's teaching in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. At dawn, no, sorry, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, <laughs> sorry, care. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. Remember, the, the celebration has just ended. People haven't gone back home yet. They're still all in Jerusalem. It's, it's a major holiday. They're full. It'd be like our Easter everybody's here, everybody's dressed up, and along comes some leaders dragging a woman in who's not wearing enough. They drag her up to the stage. Okay, stop the music, stop the service. Here's a person, here's a woman caught in the act of adultery. This is abuse of this woman. This is shock value. This is scandal. This is controversy while Jesus is trying to teach the Bible. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Can you smell it? It smells like a trap, doesn't it? Adultery probably didn't happen at the temple. That means that these religious men needed to leave the temple to go to someone's home and find somebody committing the act of adultery. What are they doing there? But here's another question. They dragged the woman to Jesus who's been committing adultery, who's missing. 
the man. Now, bicycling, a solo sport. <laughs> Skiing, a solo sport. One man bobsled, solo sport. Adultery, team sport. The woman is caught in adultery. Where's the man? That's why this is a setup. Now, to fully appreciate the story, we need to find where you land in this story. Which character are you? How do you participate in this? Are you, number one, like the woman? You're guilty. You've been caught and you did it, whatever it is. Number two, are you like the man? You're guilty. You did it, whatever it is, but it seems like you got away with it. Number three, are you more like the religious leaders? Busybodies, fault-finding, accusing, judging everyone else while you overlook your own faults and flaws. Some of you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is also a character in this story. Yeah, but believe me, none of you are like Jesus. So you got a choice. <laughs> you're the woman. You're the man. You're the religious hypocrite. That being said, the story continues. They're still coming at Jesus. In the law, Jesus, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Yeah, in the Old Testament law, adultery was punishable by death. So they're quoting an Old Testament law. Is she guilty of adultery? Yes, yeah, she is. So they say, now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Get this. Look at the inversion that's happening here. These people believe they actually have authority over Jesus. And some people still think that. They judge God. God, you're wrong. What you said is wrong. What you did is wrong. We've evolved. We've moved past this. We've moved past you is what they're saying, God. They use this question as a trap in order for a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. He wrote something. We don't know what it is. Here's this woman, the crowd, these religious leaders, and Jesus starts writing. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What he doesn't say is nothing's happened. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And again, we don't know what he wrote. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. You know why the older ones first? Because the longer you live, the more you sin, right? Here's the trap. The Old Testament, adultery was a capital crime. You would be killed by stoning, taking rocks, literally throwing them at a person. In the Mishnah, which is Jewish laws in addition to the laws in Scripture, they wrote that a man caught in adultery would be buried in a pile of dung up to his hips, I'm being gracious. <laughs> and a towel wrapped around his neck and a man on each end pulling it until he choked to death while he's sitting in a pile of dung publicly. However, 
being ruled over by the Roman Empire at this time, the Roman authorities did not allow execution on behalf of any religious reason. So in other words, the Jewish religious leaders could not send anyone to death. So they put Jesus in the midst of this dilemma. If he says, okay, execute the woman, you're violating the government laws and you're going to be arrested. If he fails to say, execute the woman, well, then you're violating the laws of Moses. You're seen as being not, quote unquote, biblical. Therefore, people are going to stop following you as a teacher of the Bible. They're giving Jesus two failed options. How many of you have been in that place? If I do this, I lose. If I do this, I lose. What Jesus does is, filled with the Holy Spirit, he chooses the most incredible path forward to navigate through this trap that they've set for him. At the same time, and more importantly, he navigates a path to redeem this woman. In Deuteronomy 17, Old Testament law, the person bringing a public charge would have to be the first one to cast a stone. It was their way of mitigating against false claims and charges. Because if you are the first to throw a stone, what you are saying is, I'm testifying to the fact. And if it is later disproven, then what I'm about to get started by killing this person will be done to me. What they're saying is that this is a way to drastically reduce any false charges and claims if I execute them and I'm lying, then they get to execute me, eye for an eye. Well, who in that group was without sin and had the right to cast the first stone? Only Jesus. Only Jesus had the right to cast the first stone. What is he going to do? At this, those who had begun to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So all the religious leaders have left. She is standing before Jesus alone. Here is this woman who has been publicly shamed, embarrassed. She has been used, mistreated this holy day by the temple. Everyone walks away and it's just her and Jesus and Jesus decides her fate. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Now, other translations will render that, no one, Lord. Is she recognizing him as Lord? Is this the beginning of her conversion? Is this the beginning of her salvation? Is this the beginning of her new life in Christ? You know, the shortest declaration of faith recorded in the Bible is three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. There is a heaviness upon us because of our sinfulness. Some of you have had this sin committed on you. Some of you have committed this sin. This is how Jesus deals with guilty sinners. And there's a couple of things I want to share with you. 
And by a couple of things, I mean several. Number one, judge yourself before you judge anyone else. These religious leaders show up. We're here to judge this woman. And Jesus is like, all right, since we're talking about judging, let's start with you guys. You see, this is what religious, haughty people do. They judge others, not themselves. How many of you can truly say, I am pure. I have kept myself from sin. Before you judge anyone else, judge yourself. Number two, put your rock down. Some of you have a rock and it's got somebody's name on it. And some of you throw it at them and you pick it back up and you throw it at them again and again and again. Put your rock down. Jesus deals with the religious leaders and Jesus deals with this woman. And at some point, whether in this life or not, he's going to deal with that man who's missing in the story. That's because Jesus deals with everybody. Which leads to number three. When all is said and done, it's going to be just you and Jesus alone. You see, at the end of the time, here's how it's going to work. You're going to be standing there in front of Jesus. No one else alongside of you to vouch for you. No one to take your place. Just you and Jesus. So pay attention to that relationship and get to know him as Lord. Number four, Jesus does not punish you because he was punished for you. This woman should have experienced the death penalty. She does not. Instead, Jesus goes to the cross and dies in her place for her sin and paid the penalty of her death. And she gets to know freedom. And guess what? You and I do as well. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one who loves, seeks, saves, serves like Jesus. Jesus dies for her. Jesus dies for you. What that means is that we don't need to kill each other. We don't need to kill ourselves. Just accept the fact that Jesus died in your place. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He does not punish me because he was punished for me. He does not punish you because he was punished for you. He does not punish her because he's going to the cross to be punished in her place. Number five, Jesus forgives sin. So let me say this. You don't work for your forgiveness. You work from your forgiveness. He doesn't tell her, okay, you need to get your act all cleaned up to come to me and then change your lifestyle and I'll forgive you. What he says is, let's start with forgiveness. And then that'll change you, and that'll change your lifestyle. What he's saying is, <laughs> he wants you. He wants you as you are. And then he'll begin the changing. Number six, Jesus lifts condemnation. He says, neither do I condemn you. You know, she could have been forgiven. But without realizing anything further than that, she probably would have carried her condemnation and shame from the other people the rest of her life. You know, and some of you are that way. You're forgiven, but you're carrying a burden of condemnation and shame. 
Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are, on, who, who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus not only forgives you, he never condemns you. If you feel condemned, that's demonic. That's the accuser of the children of God. He accuses the children of God day and night, Revelation 12, 10. So some of you need to leave your condemnation here. Some of you need to leave your shame here. Some of you need to leave your burden here. Some of you need to leave your past here. Some of you need to leave your lifestyle here. Number seven, this will be offensive, but true. Today, our culture would say to this woman, you have nothing to apologize for. That's an alternative lifestyle, two consenting adults. Who am I to say anything? Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Was she sinning? Yes. Go and sin no more. Jesus is calling her to a countercultural lifestyle. I mean, think about this. If everybody's doing it, it's not rebellion. <laughs> you want to be a true rebel? Then live according to Jesus. This is Jesus' invitation to the kind of lifestyle that not only that only the children of God can experience and enjoy. This is why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about trying not to live culture up and live kingdom down. Because culture up is sin, shame, condemnation, brokenness. Kingdom down is forgiveness, it's condemnation lifted. It's a relationship with Jesus. So that who you were is not who you are. So what you once believed is not how you believe anymore. How you once behaved is not how you will forever behave. And the last point I want to share is this. You need to give your sin to Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. This whole passage open. John 8, verse 1 opened with this being near the Mount of Olives. Jesus was near the Mount of Olives. One of the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah, in chapter 14, verse 4, he says that when the Lord comes, he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It says that the Mount of Olives will be turned into a valley. And then it says this, on that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. You all need it. Think about Revelation when you read this. It will be a unique day. A day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. There's no darkness. On that day that the Lord comes, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. You give your sin to Jesus. You give your life to Jesus. And at the end, he will be the only ruler. And he wants you to know him and love him and trust him and follow him. Because he literally loves you to death. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.